All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon, 403-974-8255. This press release today. A number of labor and civil society organizations are pressing the prime minister to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. There's pressure from within parliament, within his own party even. Uh, more than 30 MPs, 23 of those liberal MPs, are, are calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. And yeah, we see images uh, on on television, social media uh, of the you know devastation or suffering that war causes, and people understandably want to see an end to that. But what does a ceasefire actually accomplish here? Basically, it seems to me that we're telling Israel, "Don't fight back. Stop what you're doing." But why is it that they're doing what they're doing? Why are they responding? What happened on October 7th? Like, we can't lose sight of any of that. Uh, Earlier today, uh, speaking in United Arab Emirates, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie was asked about these calls for a ceasefire. Well, first and foremost, we're very concerned about the situation that is happening in Gaza. And so that is why I've been to Cairo over the weekend. That is why I'm also in the UAE, and that's why we've been engaging many partners on the region. I think it's important that we send a clear message of de-escalation, but also that we are able to talk about peace and stability. It is important that we talk about how we can engage on a political dialogue while we're dealing and managing the crisis right now. We need to think mid and longer term, and that is why we're talking about the political horizon of the region. Okay, it's kind of a non-answer, but I guess that's significant. The, the government is not prepared to to accept the idea that we should be calling for a ceasefire. Again, I don't think that accomplishes anything. It just locks in the status quo uh, where Hamas has uh, decided to declare war on Israel. And it just it seems like it, it just means that we're, we're likely to end up with, with something similar or worse further down the road. So as, as much as we... Um, you know, react to to some of these images we're seeing and the impact of war. Is a ceasefire realistic? Well, it's a great piece in the National Post today on why these calls uh, for a ceasefire in Gaza are missing the bigger picture. Uh, So joining us to talk more about it is the uh, author of that piece, Joe Roberts, is chair of J-Space Canada, Canada's pro-Israel, pro-peace, pro-democracy movement. He is also chair of Moretz Canada. Joe, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. You know, as, as you put out in your piece, and I, I can understand it too at some level, right, that these, these calls for a ceasefire are well-intentioned but misguided. So what have you made of, of some of these calls and what you've been seeing here, first of all? Well, look, I mean, I think we have to recognize what happened on October 7th was a paradigm shift in a very long conflict, right? We've been yeah. stuck in a, stag- a stalemate, uh, quagmire, whatever you want to call it, for a long time. And we've been we've seen these kind of conflicts in Gaza come and go almost every year at this point. This one is decidedly different, right? And I understand the 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 reaction of seeing people suffer in Gaza and feeling terrible and wanting it to end. It's a completely natural and as as someone who works towards peace, it's something I understand. Mm-hmm. But I also think we have to understand that if we don't act to remove Hamas and to remove the violent fundamentalist ideology behind that organization from its rule in Gaza, we'll be right back here in another year. And next time it may be more deadly and more violent. And we have to end this cycle of violence. 
Yeah, I think as, as you point out in your piece, we, we've kind of seen some of this before in terms of, you know, rocket attacks and Israeli responses. But uh, this is fundamentally different, is it? Something really has, has changed now. October 7th is, is a turning point. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the violence, just the, the sheer brutality uh, of what happened to civilians, women, children, the you know senior citizens, both murdered by Hamas, but also taken as captives and held in Gaza. And it is fundamentally different on the Israeli psyche, right? We, we talk a lot about, you've probably heard this said, is this is Israel's 9-11, but proportionally, this is 15 9-11 stacked on top of each other, right? Every Israeli I know knows someone directly who was killed or was taken. Uh, and there's, you know, even in the diaspora, Jews are a small community. There's only 15 million of us in the world. We're only, you know, one degree of separation from knowing one of these people. So there's a great trauma here for the Israeli people. And I think it's creating a different response and a different expectation of what the government must do. Well, you talk about, I mean, how we got to this point and what could come next, right? I mean, so a ceasefire is, I, I guess, um, you know, that would cease these hostilities. But, but I mean, is it a mistake to view a ceasefire as anything resembling peace? Absolutely. Ceasefire is not peace. Ceasefire is stopping this where it is and assuming it will be picked up again later. And I think that's what we all want to avoid, right? How do we move towards a permanent, lasting, just, negotiated two-state solution that recognizes both people's opportunity and legitimacy in the land of Israel-Palestine? That's what we have to get to. Two states next to each other in peace. You know, they don't have to be best friends, but they've got to live there. They have to share this place. That's the nature of it. There are uh, seven million Israelis. There are five million Palestinians. Neither of these people are going anywhere. They have to figure out how to create some kind of lasting solution. It won't be the military solution. The military solution is one step, right? Mm-hmm. You can defeat Hamas militarily, and they will. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but in order to defeat their ideology, you have to create a path towards some kind of, you know, uh, self-determination for Palestinian national aspiration. And so it has to mean restarting the peace process in earnest and really pushing towards a better future for both people. You know, look, Hamas is what it is, and, and we saw what Hamas was capable of on October 7th. So it, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to, to reconcile, to understand why there's sympathy or support out there for Hamas. And we, we've seen it on, on Canadian streets and from some Canadian organizations. I mean, maybe it's, uh, you know, just, you know, it's it's hard for some people to disentangle the Palestinian cause from, from Hamas. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know, loathing of Israel's government. Uh, but maybe it's also something much darker than that, Joe. I don't know. What, what do you make of it? Uh, that's a really tough question, Rob. I mean, I think, look, we have, I think it's a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's very hard for people. And I, we have to be clear, Hamas is not Palestinian people. It doesn't represent them. It's not who they are. There's a lot of excellent, wonderful people striving for peace uh, who are Palestinian. And Hamas has brutalized them, too. Right? Let's not forget when they took power in the Strip, you know, they, they went on an execution uh, rampage, mm-hmm. killing all of the Fatah members and PLO members. And, and anyone who dissented, I actually just spoke with a friend of mine this morning who was for speaking out against Hamas violence, was put in prison, was beaten, and had to, to come to the United States as a refugee. So they are not the Palestinian people. The war is against Hamas, not the Palestinian people. That is one thing that's important. I think it's hard for Canadians uh, and folks everywhere in the U.S. and Europe. They see suffering of Palestinians. They know that this has been a long-going conflict, and obviously there's a power imbalance. And they see that, and they, they want to be helpful. Uh, but in this case, right, the, the most helpful thing that you can do for the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause is to remove Hamas from the equation. 
and to bring some semblance. Now, that's not to say that the Israelis are perfect. Of course, they're not. Uh, we have the most extremist government we've ever had in Israel. It will likely go to. Israelis are pretty yeah. upset with yeah. the failures of October 7th. Uh, and so we really need to bring sensible leadership back to both sides, which we haven't had for about 15 years. I think that's an important point. And, and in the meantime, look, I mean, you know, war is is uh, awful. War can be uh, nightmarish, as you describe it in your piece. But uh, is this our best hope for some kind of lasting peace, uh, um, you know, a, a defeat of Hamas? I um, mean, you know, it's a long shot. This is going to be a very long process. I don't think we should have any illusions about Hamas leaving power, uh, being dismantled by the IDF, and then tomorrow there's a two-state solution and we all live in peace. I think it is the beginning of a very long process. But with Hamas staying, if Israel cedes that to Hamas, if there's international pressure to put to, to go back to the status quo, which doesn't work and didn't work and led to the death of 1,400 Israeli civilians, there's no possible chance for that to start again, right? Yeah. You can't have half of Palestinians living in Gaza, half of them living in in the West Bank under two different governments that don't talk to each other and expect there to be any kind of solution that will have one Palestinian state. It's just not possible. So this has to happen. Hamas must be removed. And it's really incumbent upon Israel and the international community to figure out what comes next. That is a big pressure. We know the White House is putting pressure on the Netanyahu administration to think about that now. Well, it was interesting today, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie was asked about these calls for a ceasefire. The the government is still resisting that, which I I think is encouraging. They've been largely quite supportive of of Israel and its right to defend itself. Uh, Your thoughts on on Canada's response so far? I think Canada has been really responsible and sober in its response. You know, I think obviously the reaction on October 7th was Israel has to do what it has to do, right? Mm -hmm. Israel has the right to defend itself and Canada supports that. Um, and I think there's a kind of a false narrative out there, Rob, about, you know, the liberals are not really supportive. And a few of these liberals have made these calls for ceasefire, which is against the government's uh, position. I, I reject that. I think the liberals have actually been very supportive of the Israeli position. And they've been really thoughtful also to try to limit the suffering of Palestinian civilians. Right. They've been pushing for aid. They've, I know for a fact they have been leading the effort to release hostages or at least a very important player in that effort and pushing uh, to get the 212 hostages released from Gaza. So I think they're being quite deliberate and quite uh, effective in this conversation and punching above our weight, frankly, as a middle power. Oh, indeed. Well, your op-ed, as mentioned, is up at nationalpost.com and uh, much more at jspacecanada.ca. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Sorry I was under such terrible circumstances. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon. Now we'll get to more of your phone calls here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. We'll certainly talk more about uh, the situation overseas in the Middle East, get a few other things to get to as well. But off the top in this hour, revisiting a conversation I think we've really been having in this country for the last couple of years for sure uh, around hockey and hockey culture and uh, sexual assault. It was May of last year. Uh, that we first learned that Hockey Canada had quietly paid out a settlement to a woman who alleged that she was the victim of a sexual assault perpetrated by members of Canada's uh, World Junior Team. Uh, and so we, we still don't have the, the full and final report on that whole situation. But it turns out that was kind of the tip of the iceberg, that Hockey Canada had uh, a large fund that was funded partially by those fees that you pay to put your kid into hockey uh, that was used to, to pay out a number of these settlements, 21, in fact, going back to 1989. 
so this was all coming out in, in drips and drabs. And so I think, you know, the fact that Hockey Canada, the perception that they were trying to keep all of this quiet, on top of everything else that had happened, really illustrated that there was a big problem here. Now, there's been a lot of change at Hockey Canada in response to all of this. Maybe things are moving in the right direction here. Uh, I don't know if that full reckoning has, has really occurred, though. And have we seen the kind of, of cultural change or fundamental change that maybe all of this uh, demands? Well, these issues are explored in, in an important new book. It's called Skating on Thin Ice, Professional Hockey, Rape Culture, and Violence Against Women. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon, two authors uh, of the book. Very pleased to welcome to the program. We've got Stu Cowan with us, a sports columnist with Post Media. Stu, good to have you with us here. Nice to be here. Uh, and also joined here this afternoon by Dr. Walter uh, D. Caserity, who's uh, one of the co-authors of the book, as mentioned, uh, director of the Research Center on Violence and a professor of sociology, West Virginia University. Walter, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, the Hockey Canada revelations that came to light in May of last year. I, I guess kind of for the two of you, the starting point on your work on this goes back to the year before uh, the NHL draft of 2021. Walter, you had reached out to Stu at the time. So talk a bit about kind of where this all began for, for the two of you here. Okay, yeah. Um, well, what's interesting, first of all, I want to say that I, I am a, a Canadian citizen and I used to live in Montreal, and I routinely read uh, the Montreal Gazette, because mm-hmm. I'm a big Montreal Canadiens fan. And on July 21st, uh, 2021, I read one of Stu's columns about uh, the Canadians drafting Logan Mayu, who was, you know, convicted of um, image-based sexual abuse. In other words, he, you know, had consensual sex with an 18-year-old Swedish woman and non-consensually videotaped it, right. shared the video and her name with his teammates in Sweden. He was on loan to Sweden from the London Knights. I was absolutely horrified. I, I was at a loss for words. And I should mention that I've devoted 40 years of my life to studying violence against women in both Canada and the United States. I didn't know what to do, really. Uh, but my, my gut reaction was to email Stu. And I, I emailed him and told him a little bit about myself and that I do work in the area of image-based sexual abuse. And I sent him a couple articles. And I know he's a very busy person. And uh, he got back to me and um, he wrote a couple of stories that featured some of my thoughts on, on the issue. And we, we continued our conversation, both of us deeply concerned, along with our other co-author, Martin Schwartz, deeply concerned about cleaning up hockey. Uh, and so we decided to write this book and write it for the general public. Yeah, Stu, and I, I remember that was a big deal at the time, and, and it seemed as though the Montreal Canadiens were just completely tone-deaf in, in how they went about it. I, I mean, you were covering it. Was it obvious then that this wasn't just a story about, you know, the Montreal Canadiens' head office, that maybe there, there was something bigger going on here? Well, the thing was, Logan Mayo had asked not to be drafted in that draft. He had said that, you know, what he had done, he didn't deserve to be drafted, he didn't deserve to be playing the NHL, and he had asked for some time to prove that it was a mistake he made and he could learn from that mistake and that he was a better person than that. And, you know, 30 other teams in the first round of the NHL draft passed on Logan Mayo, and then at number 31, the Canadians decided to take him, and the, the reaction it was immediate. I mean, even on the American coverage and ESPN coverage of the draft, it, it was shocking. It was polarizing the Canes with, you know, much like Canes of all teams, you know, with uh, that uh, so worried about their image and their 24 Stanley Cups would, would draft him. And what was even more surprising to me 
and the fact they drafted him is that they seemed like they didn't expect to have any blowback from it. It was right. quite shocking, actually. Um, you would have thought that you know, this is one that wasn't a decision they made at the last minute. They have draft meetings for weeks leading up to the draft, and they obviously felt that if he was available at number 31, they were going to take him. But they were tone deaf with the public, you know, after the Me Too movement and everything else, just about, uh, it's like they didn't think it was a big deal. And then when it did become a big deal, they really weren't prepared for it. Uh, even the day after the draft, after there had already been such a negative reaction, and they brought Trevor Timmons, their assistant GM, out. One of the reporters said, you know, Logan Mayo didn't believe that he deserved to play in the NHL. What do the Canadians believe that he does? And there was about a 15-second silence before he said, can you repeat the question? So the fact they weren't prepared for that type of question and that kind of reaction, I think, speaks volumes about sort of the hockey culture and they live in their own little bubble and drafting Logan Mayo to the Canes didn't seem like it was a big deal to them and uh, it turned out that it was to a lot of people. Yeah, no kidding. And and I mean, you know, fast forward a few months later then, uh, and, and in early 2022, the story breaks about Hockey Canada and the allegations against the 2018 World Junior Team, and then these other allegations come to light. So, you know, Stu, going from the Logan Mayu story to, to this, right, There there's there's some common themes here. Well, it just kept happening. I mean, the Hockey Canada story broke, and then there was the junior story that broke. There was a couple of players from the Victoriaville Tigers who pled guilty last week to sexual assault on a 17-year-old hotel employee. They're going to be sentenced in March. They could face up to 10 years in jail. And these these things just kept coming. The Kyle Beach situation in Chicago, they kept coming one after another. And Walter and I kept in touch after... Um, him first reaching out to me after the Logan Mayhew thing, and it was just like, how does this keep happening, and, and how does hockey culture allow this to keep happening? And that was sort of the thought behind the book. I'm not an expert on, sorry, I, I cover hockey, I'm not an expert on sexual abuse or uh, abuse against women. Walter is, and so, um, you know, he sort of took an approach to it, like, how can we fix this? And, and and sort of looking at, at how this happens and why it happens and why do these players not only allegedly committing sexual assaults but videotaping it and photographing it, like why? Right. And, you know, Walter does a great job in this book of looking into reasons why, not just in hockey but in other sports and in society in general. Yeah, well, well Walter, let, um, let me get you to elaborate on that because, you know, this starts off with, you know, you're, you're – you know, horrified by how the Montreal Canadiens approach this the situation with this player. Uh, then we get this avalanche of all of these the, those stories. What kind of a, a picture was that painting for you? Well, you know, this has been going on for a long, long time. You know, and one of my mentors, the late Michael D. Smith, uh, was one of the world's leading experts on hockey violence. And, um, you know, people were doing this type of work on, you know, at male athletes' violence against women you know, from the late 80s to the late 1990s, there was some good research, and then it just disappeared. It just, for some reason, disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened was, after the Mayu case and talking to Stu, I, I mean, I started doing a lot of research, digging up a lot of materials. And most of the work that's done on male athletes' violence against women focuses on U.S. NCAA football players and basketball players. But what happened was when I started doing research, really in-depth research, I'm convinced now, Rob, I'm convinced that hockey is just as bad. And perhaps, perhaps junior hockey is even worse than NCAA basketball and football. Why might that be? uh, Well, it flies under the radar. What's really interesting is, consider the NHL. It's the only professional league that allows fighting. 
Now, do you remember the malice in the palace that involved Indianapolis and Detroit? Oh, in basketball, yes. Yeah. yeah, right. And so after that fight, you know, people said, oh, look at these people. They used to racist comment. They're thugs, and we need a dress code, and then the NBA's out of control, and so on. Well, fighting happens routinely in the NHL. The NHL is predominantly white, heteronormative. I mean, I think there's only one person who publicly identifies as being gay, and, and he plays for the National, National Predators Farm Club. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, there's the stereotype of hockey as being, you know, a sport that's played by good, wholesome, all-Canadian boys. And also, you know, people will say, well, this is really a Canadian thing. It, you know, in the United States, people say that's a Canadian thing. We really don't focus on it. And I, I always say, Stu knows this, that's interesting because even when we had the original six hockey teams, only two were Canadian. And the vast majority of the farm clubs were American. Now we have, what, 32 professional hockey teams and only six are Canadian? And one out of every three NHL players comes from the NCAA now. So hockey has escaped scrutiny, except for some journalists. Uh, The last book to focus on um, sexual assault in Canadian hockey was Laura Robinson's Crossing the Line, and that was published in 1998. And no one seemed to listen to her at that time. Uh, Stu, you mentioned the reaction to to the Logan Mayu draft, and and you know the reaction last year we saw from politicians and from big corporate sponsors was was quite something. But as you've been following all of this, Stu, to what extent has there been an actual reckoning? Um, you know, not just leadership changes at Hockey Canada, but has there been a, a really a, you know serious attempt to address this within the game? Well. From the Canadians' original reaction or lack of reaction to it, to what they've done since then has been sort of night and day. They've done a lot of good things since then. They've changed their entire management team. Mark Bergeron is gone, the general manager who drafted Logan Mayu. So is Trevor Timmons, his assistant. Uh, so is their PR person, the media relations person. So they, they, they sort of cleaned house. Um, they brought in more women in their head office. Uh, France Margaret Belanger is now the president of uh, Group Sayash Sports and Entertainment. They brought in Chantal uh, McAbee, who had been working for RDS as a television reporter to be their media relations and public relations person. Uh, they started a um, respect and consent program that a million dollars was donated to, and that goes not just for their players, but everybody working for Group Sayash. So since the original decision to do that, they've, they've sort of been leaders in taking, uh, in taking a stance and trying to change things. Uh, and they should be applauded for that after, you know, as I said, the sort of lack of reaction they had uh, uh, from the beginning. But one of the things I find Walter writes in the book that's really interesting, and for someone who's around hockey locker rooms a lot, around hockey a lot, there's, there's so many good people in the hockey world. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. Walter writes about what he calls pluralistic ignorance, which is situations where individuals think they are the only ones who oppose the majority position because no one else is speaking up. And I think that's one of the big problems we have in hockey. Um, you know, why did Hockey Canada even get involved in, in the situation with the alleged gang rapes? Why didn't they just leave it to the, the police and the court system? Mm-hmm. Why did they pay off this woman? Uh, why did they cover this up instead of dealing with the problem? Uh, same with the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, with the Kyle Beach situation. Uh, Joel Kendall, their head coach, actually wrote a letter of recommendation for the coach who sexually abused the player, which is shocking. Like, it, it seems to be why do... Why do they cover up for these bad guys in the hockey world and when there's a lot of good guys in the hockey world? And I think that's that's one of the 
big problems there are. Uh, we see the recent thing with the NHL banning pride tape on the, the, for the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community. And some of the players now are saying they're going to use it. We had the first player the other night who had the tape on his stick. But it's sort of players seem to be afraid to speak up in the hockey world. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the old boys club that runs the hockey world. And they're afraid of the repercussions that might come from it. So that pluralistic ignorance, I think, that Walter writes about, I think, is, is a huge problem when it comes to hockey. That's an interesting point. I mean, Walter, further to that, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the culture that these elite athletes come up in and, you know, being told at a very young age that they're special, they're, they're superstars in the making and sort of that, that sense that they can get away with, with whatever. On top of yeah. that, right, the culture of silence, these issues around toxic masculinity, like, like it all kind of seems to, to come together in a terrible way. It does. And, you know, it should be emphasized that these people don't come as clean slates into the NHL and become not only sexually abusive, let's not forget that there's a sizable portion of hockey players who beat their their uh, partners, you know, their their wives and their, their common-law partners, but they, they come well-prepared. These men who are abusive, um, they've been abusive before they come to the NHL, and we have ample research demonstrating that. So we have to, from a, you know, a policy and prevention standpoint, we have to start at a young age. You know, we, we really do. I mean, the NHL can't be, you know, held totally accountable for right. uh, what these players do. We, we need to look at what's happening in the minor leagues. We need to have some very careful, thoughtful um, discussions about licenses for coaches and who gets involved with mentoring these young boys. It's pretty scary. Think about, you know, I mean, Sheldon Kennedy. Yeah. Theo Fleury. I mean, these things are not unusual. I hate to say it. I mean, I've been looking at research done in Europe and Canada and other places that the sexual and emotional and physical abuse of children as athletes is, is just staggering. Franklin's Lost Expedition. Of course, it wasn't called that at the time, but things did not go well. Uh, for this uh, expedition, these two ships, the HMS uh, Erebus and HMS Terror. Uh, 1845, they set out. And by 1848, uh, tragedy had struck. So there's been a lingering mystery ever since as to what exactly happened. Uh, like I say, now almost 200 years after the fact, we're getting a better picture of all of that through some pretty important discoveries. This is an exciting time to be involved in this field, uh, being able to to finally locate the the, the wreckage uh, and everything else that's that's yielding. But some questions, you know, would would be difficult to answer. Some questions would have to be posed uh, to the members of the crew themselves or to Franklin himself, Captain Sir John Franklin. And what role did he play in what unfolded? How much blame rests on him? What do we need to know after all of these years about the man whose name is associated uh, with this remarkable story? There's a new book out that takes a closer look at the man himself 
in all of this. It's called Searching for Franklin, New Answers to the Great Arctic Mystery. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of that book, Arctic Historian, and author Ken McGugan joining us here this afternoon. And by the way, Ken's going to be here in Calgary tomorrow night, an event at Shelf Life Books, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Ken, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. As I say, there's a lot of interest, a lot of renewed interest in this story. I think with, you know, all the, the discoveries that have been made. I mean, first of all, your thoughts on what we're learning about the Franklin Expedition. Yeah, we are learning a, a, a lot. Um, it, it's been interesting over the years. Back in the 1980s, well, you see, what made this so unusual, this particular expedition, the way it ended, um, it ended so early, relatively speaking, for example, a few years before, there was an expedition led by James Clark and John Ross, and it lasted four winters in the Arctic before the men made their way out, with uh, losing only three of 24 men. So that's four years in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Franklin got trapped in the ice and, uh, you know, barely lasted a little more than two years uh, before he himself died and all kinds of other men died. And then there was some very bizarre behavior. There was a hospital tent set up outside, outside near where the ships were trapped. Um, and uh, some curious decisions were made. So people have speculated about this over the years. First of all, they thought, well, maybe that was lead poisoning that, you know, did, did some damage. Um, I think people are skeptical about that by about 2000. Maybe it was botulism, but those theories have been more or less refuted, and that left us with a, with a, a singular mystery. And I think I've come up with the uh, with the answer as to what befell the expedition. So, how do you go about answering that question? You know, 175 years later. Well, the way I proceed is uh, twofold: um, history. What does history teach us? And secondarily, personal experience in the Arctic. And um, <laughs> as strange as it may seem, I've spent the past 25 years. This has been one of my main obsessions. This is my sixth book about Arctic exploration. Yeah. So I've been immersed in the history of it. And I came up with, or I noticed, that there were some, there were some precedents. Uh, back in 1619, uh, Jens Monk, sailed into Churchill, as you know, probably the polar bear capital of the world. Right. He sailed in with 64 men, and he sailed out three of them. Lost most of the men, and he left a, a good written record. So we know that the misery, that the, uh, we, we're aware that the men suffered miserable death, and it was awful. And then, you see, subsequently, I came ac- uh, upon... Uh, a 1973 article in um, uh, Canada's History magazine, then called The Beaver. That article, uh, Delbert Young, suggested that the man had eaten infected polar bear meat and so died of trichinosis. Then I remembered another uh, another expedition, the Andre expedition. Uh, uh, men set sail, they were going to the North Pole, set sail in a balloon. Well, the balloon crashed, but the man landed, and uh, you know they survived until they ate polar bear, and that's the problem. And then they died. 
and <laughs> and, and um, subsequently a doctor, you know, did a forensic analysis, and sure enough, found it was uh, uh, trichinosis that killed them. And um, so those precedents uh, got me thinking, and I, you know, analyzed the what we know about uh, how the Franklin expedition proceeded after it fell apart, and. Um, you know, I, I learned as well that uh, I tracked the earlier disaster that Franklin led, a forgotten expedition almost, uh, that he left in 1819, overland expedition um, to the Arctic coast, and how he was, um, you know, he happily ate polar bear when some of his, uh, well, all of his uh, Dene guides said, no, we're not going to eat that. That doesn't look too good. So... <clears throat> In other words, um, he was avid for polar bear meat. And the problem is, trichinosis is not in every polar bear, <clears throat> but it is endemic among polar bears. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that um, that got me thinking that this was, this was what happened. The man ate, um, and I also got to Beachy Island a few times, and I saw polar bears there. I got driven off Beachy Island because yeah. I was sailing with Adventure Canada. And as soon as you see a polar bear now, well, you get out of there. You don't right. kill the bear. But that would not be the response Franklin had. So putting these things together, it seemed to me fairly obvious after a while, you know, mulligan over, that uh, the men shot polar bear on Beachy Island, put the meat into the casks that they traveled with, and after they finished the salted meat in those casks, they would put the fresh polar bear meat, but some of it was infected, and um, and the end result was the, that they started to die in great numbers. So that, that in a nutshell, is uh, what I think happened. They ate infected polar bear meat, uh, contracted uh, trichinosis, and all the symptoms match, and that was the uh, that was what that was the root cause. It wasn't the sole sole cause. I mean, it's pretty cold up there and scurvy, etc. But the root cause of what happened to the Franklin expedition. That's interesting. Now, would they have been warned about that? I mean, one interesting aspect of the story is, you know, their encounters with uh, Inuit indigenous communities along the way, and maybe the advice they would have been getting on how to survive from people who know how to survive in in those conditions. Well, Franklin was never very good at taking advice from indigenous peoples. Um, I show that quite clearly uh, on his 1819 overland expedition. When he reached the coast after a brutal slog of lasting two years, uh, Kaicho, the Dene leader, told him, okay, don't go along the coast. It's too late in the season. Um, the animals are all gone. Mm-hmm. And the Inuit who, uh, you know, frequent the coast, have followed the animals inland. Uh, another indigenous uh, man, Pierre St. Germain, a, a brilliant uh, translator and voyageur, said exactly the same thing. Don't go there. You're not going to come back. Uh, it's going to be a disaster. Uh, mm-hmm. But he uh, he chose not to listen. He, he felt confident that the good Lord would provide. And uh, the end result was that he lost uh, 11 of his 20 men, more than half, he himself narrowly survived because uh, uh, the Dene uh, sent a rescue party at the last minute. So, you know, that was the kind of thing that uh, that went on. 
Was he an arrogant man? Was he a stubborn man? Well, I would say that he was very much a product of his time. Yeah. And he had a colonial mentality. Right. And um, so he believed in following the Royal Navy orders. He believed that the, um, that the British were far superior to uh, any other peoples. He believed uh, he was a fervent Christian, and he could call upon the Lord at any time. <clears throat> and so uh, arrogant is... Um, he, he, he was arrogant, but it was, a, it was an arrogance endemic to his time and place. <clears throat> right. I mean, I guess the question then becomes, and maybe it speaks to the whole, you know, underlying purpose of the mission. I mean, you know, it, it maybe all of this didn't need to happen. Was was this a preventable tragedy? Um. Yeah, it was was preventable, but um, <laughs> they they wanted to know what the geography was like. Mm-hmm. They were still looking <clears throat> for a passage across the top of of, uh, of North America, and uh, there was a kind of a race to find that, to find that waterway that would enable ships to sail, so that, um, I mean, they didn't, you know, it's one of those things you don't need to do, you don't need to send uh, spaceships to the moon either, but, uh, you know, mankind is given to uh, exploration and uh, seeing what's out there, and, uh if if you're going to venture forth, uh, these kinds of tragedies are going to happen. Was anything learned at the time? Like, did this have an impact on, on subsequent Arctic exploration? Yeah, it dampened enthusiasm for a while. Yeah, but first of all, it uh, it engendered all kinds of searches. Uh, you know, dozens of searches went out. Well, that was thanks to Lady Franklin, who was a formidable figure in her own right. And uh, she, uh, well, by 1847, he sailed in 1845. By 1847, she was rallying the troops to say, well, we better send out some search expeditions. So they sent out all kinds of search expeditions, both uh, by sea and by land. And actually, those search expeditions uh, opened up the map of the Arctic. I mean, it's a very complicated archipelago, these islands and waterways here and there. And it was also the end of the Ice Age, so Little Ice Age. So, you know, it was very difficult to get through those waters at that time. Uh, they didn't know what, where the islands were, so it was a mystery. But the, uh, the search expeditions did manage to, chart, to uh, uh, chart a great deal of the Arctic so that it wasn't so mysterious by the time they stopped sending those out. We mentioned, you know, the discovery of the the Erebus and and some of what we've been learning about this in more recent years. And we had the the story, I think it was just back in uh, maybe December of last year, so less than a year ago, these 275 artifacts that were recovered from the ship. So there there is more to learn about all of this, isn't there? And maybe more that we can learn to to confirm your theory. Yeah, exactly. So I'm very excited about that. I mean, even even the folio that they found and brought up, um, among those 275 artifacts, I mean, if they can decipher it, um, that will at least prove that um, a notebook can survive, or a logbook, if it's even if it's underwater for a long time, it can survive and give you written uh, written evidence of, of of how it all went down. So that is the, in a way, the holy grail. Yeah. But you've also got at the same time. 
um, a great many uh, individuals uh, traveling overland to see if they can they can find what to them is the Holy Grail, which is the the uh, vault containing the body of Franklin. My friend Louis Camelcac was was one of those who was searching for for, for that grave site. I mean, Stephen King. Well, you know, maybe with Franklin, if because he died early in the voyage, uh, maybe they buried uh, records of the voyage, etc. So to find that body, actually to find any body uh, frozen in the permafrost off off those who trekked out from the ships uh, would enable uh, researchers, scientists, to uh, confirm my own thinking on it. Because not so long ago, I checked with a contemporary epidemiologist Mm-hmm. A leading Canadian epidemiologist named uh, David Waltner Taves. He thought, yeah, that's a. He thought, yeah, it does kind of sound like uh, trichinosis. But here's the thing: uh, a, a teenage girl died in Greenland and was buried in the permafrost uh, three or four centuries ago. They recently came across her body, and sure enough, they found trichinosis oh, wow. uh, in, in the dead body because it's preserved in the permafrost. Yeah. So that kind of confirmation could come as well. Very interesting. Well, the book is called Searching for Franklin, New Answers to the Great Arctic Mystery. And as mentioned, you're going to be here in Calgary tomorrow night. An event at Shelf Life Books on Fort Street Southwest uh, starts at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Ken, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.